From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 327. Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN, SaneBox, and MailRoute. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. We're back. We made it. We made it through. This is a normal episode of Upgrade. I'm promising, even though we have just started it, it, it feels like a normal episode of Upgrade after so much going on the last few weeks. Drafts, events, post-events, embargoes, interviews. Reviews. Now it's just, you know, just it's your, it's your upgrade. It's just an upgrade. It's good. Although we do have an comfy. operating system to talk about today. I guess we do. Did that come out? Kind of. Is it, uh, have we reached macOS 12 yet? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we have a hashtag Snell Talk question from Dylan, who is inspired by last week's Snell Talk question. And asks, Jason, what is your favorite Pro? So last time we had, what is your favorite Mini? What is your favorite Pro? Oh, this is a hard one. So some could be iPhone Pro, iPad Pro, Mm -hmm. AirPods Pro, Final Mm -hmm. Cut Pro. Yep. Mac Pro, iMac Pro, Logic Logic Pro Pro X, which is this, I guess Pro, they took the X's away. They took the X's away. They stole our X's. Because it's not not Mac OS X anymore. I guess that's what those meant. Get the X out. You got to X them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say the iPad Pro because I've used the iPad Pro as my uh, mobile computing device since it was released in 2018 um, to this day. Still use it. Uh, so two, you know, or no, 2016, right? For the original one. So gosh, it's been, uh, yeah. The original was 2015. It was 2015. 2015. Five years of me and yeah. the iPad Pro being BFFs. So mm-hmm. it's got to be the iPad Pro. That's the answer. Five years of Apple Pencil, Mike? Five years of Apple Pencil? I know. Woo. Yeah, it happened not too, not too long after we started the show. It was like the next year. Yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's my choice. I, uh, what's your choice? Um, iPad Pro is up there. AirPods Pro are up there as well. Yeah. Oh, honestly. they're great. They're great. But my, my relationship with AirPods Pro is more limited and mm-hmm. um, not as long running sure. as the iPad Pro. The reason I knew about the five-year thing is from Apple's photo widget because it reminded me of the first time that me and federico met in person when he came to london to pick up a review unit of the original ipad pro oh so it, right i remember I that it was around now and then i looked at the day and i was like wow five years Did you pick him up at heathrow or something <laughs> uh Did you pick him up the airport no uh no not that time no i no, met okay. him outside uh, apple's offices i pick him oh, up right I have picked him up at Heathrow. Um, I think I took him to Heathrow that day. Though. Oh, that's right. That's right. I took him back. Uh, and I was waiting for all of the five years of iPad Pro articles, but nobody wrote them. I think everyone oh, was no. too busy. Yeah, there was too much else going on. Right. Well, now it's time. It's time for that. That'll be my next project. Is, uh, there you go. 20 articles about <laughs> one five, iPad Pro. Five iPads for five years. All right, thank you to Dylan for that Snell Talk question. If you would like to send in a question to help us start the show, just send a tweet with the hashtag Snell Talk question. I'll use the command uh, question mark Snell Talk in the Relay FM members Discord. Uh, you can get access to the Discord, by the way, if you sign up for Upgrade Plus. Go to getupgradeplus.com. You get a ton of wonderful benefits, including ad-free longer episodes of Upgrade every single week. So we do, we provide those to uh, subscribers of Upgrade Plus. Go to getupgradeplus.com to find out more and sign up. Jason, it is nearly that time again. The Upgradies are coming. Our annual award show, the seventh annual Upgradies, is going to be happening uh, towards the end of December. Exact episode date 
to be determined, but I'm expecting it will probably be December 28th, I reckon, is probably when we're going to yeah, do the upgradies. I think so. But vote, that means voting is now open. So we will call on you, the Upgradians, to help us, as you have done many years in the past, to go to upgradies.vote. That is where you can go. Oh and I'll God. have a link in the show notes in case you're not sure how to spell that. So you can just go and click it. Um, what we want you to do is go in and fill out all of the categories that you want. Uh, you can write in your responses or choose from the, the drop downs that may exist on these pages to help us decide best apps, games, products, stories, loads of wonderful stuff that we will be looking at for the 7th Annual Upgradies. Jason, there is one category that I was thinking of, because I've been starting to think about my Upgradies, uh, my mm-hmm. nominations. I should know, in case you're uh, not too familiar with the Upgradies, we ask for the votes of our audience, the Upgradians, and we use that along with our own picks to decide the winners. So me and Jason bring our own nominations to the categories. We take into account what the our listeners like and what they think, and then we use that to discuss and decide yeah. who or what wins the vote for that year. And you can find a history of all of the past Upgradies winners at Upgradies.com. We have uh, a wonderful Hall of Fame there for you to go and peruse through so you can see who or what has won each category or each year, which is a really cool thing that me built and Zach by, um, work together on. Yeah, built by Upgrady and Zach, mm-hmm. yeah, who also does the draft report card uh, yep. or draft uh, scorecard. So very, very good. It's I, Again, I'm taken back to the fact that we did this the first time and you tried to make it the first annual and I said, no, 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 no. It's only annual after you do more than one. Well, look at us now, seventh Seven. annual. But as as I was saying, there was one category that I think is going to be particularly difficult this year, which is the best movie category, because there's oh, not been so. a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, there's lots I think of it's going to be a little trickier than normal, because I actually couldn't think of any new movies I've seen this year. Get in your votes for Wonder Woman eighty four now, which we're gonna we're gonna talk about in a minute. But uh, like the Oscars, the Upgradies allows movies to not be released in theaters and only on streaming <laughs> this year, just for this year. My problem isn't that movies have been coming out; it's that I haven't been seeing them. Okay, well that is a problem. Yeah, and let's move so we can actually pivot that straight into talking uh, about Upstream. Uh, okay. But yeah, just before we we leave this, if you go to upgradies.vote. You can go ahead and cast your votes. Um, we will give you ample notice as to when we're closing the nominations. You've got a good few weeks uh, to go and get your voting in. So let's talk about a couple of upstream headlines. Upstream is where we take a look at news in streaming media and the technology companies that surround it. So talking about movies coming out and movies I can't see, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman yeah. 1984 is coming to HBO Max on December 25th. Huge news in terms of movie industry strategy. And we talked about it here a few weeks ago. The idea that you're taking a movie that was you spent hundreds of millions of dollars on and are going to put it on HBO Max is, I mean, it's never... It's never going to directly earn back the money you put into it, right? They're taking a huge loss on this. What they get is promotion for HBO Max. Which it seems like HBO Max kind of needs. Hasn't 
really seems yeah. to have gone the way that they wanted. I think so. Far. I don't know. I mean, it it uh, I I see a lot of negativity about HBO Max. I use HBO Max a lot, but then again, I paid for HBO before, and I get HBO Max with my cable subscription. So mm-hmm. because I pay for HBO, yep. so for me, it's like, well, yeah, I just keep getting it, and there's more stuff on it, and I'm actually pretty happy about it. But but sure, they're in a tough battle, and the more um reasons you have to sign up for hbo max especially i think for for them right now they've got a lot of people who get hbo on cable and haven't signed up for hbo max and they really want those people to kind of come over and become hbo max customers they couldn't like i know that it's been a thing that like uh, it wasn't available on uh was it the amazon fire stuff and it's just become available there's like if you had if your tv solution was using a fire tv stick you just couldn't watch hbo now until now uh, HBO Max until now. That's what I mean. HBO Now yeah. until Max. Um, the yeah, it's and it's not on Roku yet. Um, but but I think that's that is an issue. But I'm talking about like I've also read that they've got all these people who are eligible for HBO Max because they get HBO on their cable company and their cable company has a deal with them to uh, turn that into an HBO Max subscription, and that's what I'm on. Who haven't done it? Like who haven't signed up? And said, "Yes, convert my connect my cable to my HBO Max and get me HBO Max." And they want those people, right? They want mm-hmm. those people to be, you know, discovering the wonders of HBO Max. And um, and so maybe this will be a motivator for that too. But they, they, yeah, they need attention, and this is a good way for them to get it. Uh, how do you quantify that in terms of money? Because HBO Max is obviously a very important thing for Warner Brothers. Um, Warner Media to have, um, and they want to grow it, but it's not money in the bank today like movie theater ticket receipts would be. Um, I my understanding is also that like they're gonna have to pay. <laughs> Probably there had to be a negotiation here where they're basically paying a fee that's gonna go to the people who have a part of the of the um the profit of the movie or the gross of the movie because um. That it's not going to make that like the no. assumptions that people made. If you're a producer and you've got a little piece of the of the net of the movie, you aren't going to get it now. Like you negotiated that thinking it would be in a theater. Yep. So it's 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 a mess. And the or fact might that they've done it difficult is... to work out the attribution of people that signed up for HBO Max to see this movie. You know, like so they're just like we'll just write you a check. I guess. Yeah, I think that that it, there's some of that going on. So it in the end, it's a move where they don't want to let it sit for another year and hope because because keep in mind it's not just that in a lot of places especially in the u.s movie theaters basically are shut down or if they are open nobody's going to them but there's this anticipation that that's going to be the case for a long time and there are a bunch of movies that are stacked up now Mm -hmm. that are made and sitting and so they've decided to pull the trigger on this, everybody's, you know, Black Widow is delayed by Marvel. They ha- they aren't putting it on Disney Plus. They're they're like, no, 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 we're going to wait and we're going to put it in the theater. Wonder Woman, which is, I, I would say, a much bigger movie <laughs> than Black Widow, given the track record of the previous Wonder Woman movie. Um, the, it's a big move and it, there's a little bit of desperation, but there's a little bit of a uh, wanting to prop up uh, HBO Max and also get the movie out there. It will show in the rest of the world, which there are places and like, you know, so if you're annoying. in a place, if you're in Australia or in Taiwan or something, movie theaters are open and it, it'll be fine. You can go see the movie. Uh, in the UK, where you're locked down, I guess you won't get to see it. Oh, but also one of the major chains has just, they're closed. They're just closed. Yeah. So 
this is what's so frustrating to me, this US-centric uh, way of doing things. Like, so we'll all agree that coronavirus means you can't go see the movie, right? So why did they offer no option for me in the UK? Why can't I pay $25 on iTunes, right? It's just like, oh, you know, you just have to work it out on your own. Well, so this this takes us to another thing that's happening here, which is in December for a month, December 25th to January 25th, Wonder Woman 1984 will be on HBO Max. Then it disappears. So what they're using this as is a simultaneous with the theatrical window in parts of the world where they have a theatrical something to happen. It'll be on HBO Max. And then it goes away from HBO Max. So presumably on January 26th or 25th, it goes in, it slides into the premium video on demand window, which means that that's the moment where if you don't have HBO Max or you don't want HBO Max or you can't get HBO Max, it will become a for rental and for sale. Or maybe that what they do the staggered where it'll be it'll be for sale for two weeks and then it'll be for sale and for rent after mm-hmm. that. It's going to go into that window. So it's only un, unlike most movies that come to a streaming service and then they're just on that streaming service forever and that's it. They they want they want their money from Blu-rays and from online sales and from online rentals. They do want that as much of that as they can still get. So that will still happen with this movie. It'll just happen after the HBO Max window. So really interesting. It's like the you HBO know, Max window exists in America. Yes. There is no window I don't know. here. Well, I don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the world. I think in the rest of the world, if you're in a place where the movie theaters aren't open, you can't see it. And then in a month, yeah. it'll you'll be able to rent it on iTunes, it's basically. Just, it's wild to me. These, these kind of strategies just really, you know... Obviously, I am sensitive to it, but they they become frustrating. Like sure. Warner's whole thing with HBO Max has been really annoying to me anyway, because they're making it content and they're locking up stuff, and they have absolutely no uh, known plan for international distribution right. of anything. Yep, so you own it, HBO. Right? Disney yeah. made it work. Make it work. Well, their challenge is that they have some stuff that they don't own because they sold it internationally, right? It's the same problem as CBS. They, they're yeah, into I mean, some like, of the same every, deals as every CBS. Every service has this, but like Disney planned it, right? They actually had a plan and they waited until they could get the rights back. And then they, well, like, so Warner had no plan. The, they just rushed this is, it. This is the thing. Disney had a plan. Warner didn't have a plan and and they they did rush it because they knew with Disney coming out into the market that they couldn't wait and launch their if if Warner Media had said well we're going to launch HBO Max but not until 2022 mm-hmm. everybody'd be like wow you're you're dead in the water you're doomed they they knew they had to get something out there and that's why it's imperfect especially internationally but i would i would argue it's really no different than CBS All Access which is about to turn into whatever Paramount Plus is is some of these companies are doing that now also some of these companies are doing that now and have to struggle with their international deals and their international rollouts are going to be slow and it's going to be super awkward but they're they're at least kind of learning and starting in Mm. the u.s territory that they're most familiar with disney's situation is is different in that disney plus isn't it isn't like an evolution of existing cable or broadcast properties and so their rights encumbrances are less and they had longer to plan it 
So I, I would argue, I mean, this is the thing. Disney is a better rollout. Like, <laughs> right? Disney's a better rollout. Apple is a better rollout because they're not encumbered at all, mm-hmm. even though they're also not encumbered by familiar intellectual property, but they're not encumbered by a lot of uh, deals from previous iterations of their company that didn't care about streaming and didn't care about mm-hmm. international streaming. So I would say Warner is in the same boat as something like CBS, Paramount, Viacom, that uh, they're, they're, and NBC as well. Like these big American companies that have so many complicated deals that it's going to be very hard for them to try and compete internationally, complete wor- compete worldwide. Whereas Disney and Apple and Netflix and increasingly Amazon, they are playing a different game because they can be everywhere in the world. So yeah. it's um yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch this. There's like but, a sliding um, scale of frustration though, right? Be- for me, because CBS. They know they have no plan, so they've made their content available on Netflix, right? Like you can, I can watch the Star Wars show, uh, the Star Trek. Oh dear, I can watch the Star Trek shows oh. like Discovery here on Netflix, right? Yes, because they know they don't have a plan. But yes, Peacock and HBO Max, it's like, eh. yeah. But here's, but here's the thing: they taking a feature film like this, they know that it, they could sell it to somebody in the UK. But they're gonna they're going to then forego all of the money that they might get from rental and uh, purchase on DVD later, or I mean on uh, on like or or Blu-ray, but like any of that post that video on demand mm. cycle. So if you're if you're foregoing that and theatrical, the amount of money that you would need to be compensated mm-hmm. by a local by a streaming service that works in market in order to um, balance it out, because you're not gonna get HBO Max subscribers out yeah. of it. Is probably more than anyone would be willing to pay. So I understand why you're sad about it, but it uh, it's like there's no option there. They should just sell it on December 25th outside of America. Well, the problem is lots of parts of outside of America have movie theaters open. It's just your country that doesn't. So that's part of the problem. Well, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Apple have aired a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, the animated uh, show, on PBS yesterday. And they're going to be doing the same for Charlie Brown Christmas on December 13th. You may remember uh, Apple acquired the rights to these properties, as well as doing a deal for more original Peanuts content. Uh, Apple kind of knew that they were taking a tradition and put and like owning it. So they made the announcement that they would offer these shows for free. You could even in the Apple TV app, if you had an Apple TV or you could watch them online or on any smart TV, anywhere Apple was, they had a window of time where you could go and watch Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, for, for free. Uh, nevertheless, Apple received some criticism for this and have ended up doing a deal to show, and have and now we're seeing it, uh, Thanksgiving specials and the Christmas specials on PBS with no uh, commercials. And they've got. Well, there's note. never any commercials on PBS. Okay, well, I don't know. I'm just what doing what the article tells me. Uh, and they yeah. also put a note at the front and said, like, "Hey, we are uh, giving. We're Apple, and we're giving this to you." Yeah, I mean, PB- they used to be on commercial TV. They were on CBS originally, and then on ABC. But PBS doesn't have commercials, so it's not like Apple's like. Apple's gift here is that if somebody wants to watch this and they only have free over-the-air TV, it has gotten an airing on free over-the-air TV and the Christmas Mm -hmm. episode on December 23rd, the Charlie Brown Christmas, the classic, the Thanksgiving one, by the way, is for those outside the U.S. who don't uh, understand Thanksgiving, suffice it to say, 
the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving is awful. It's a terrible. It's bad. Don't, <laughs> it's bad. It's real bad. My kids used to watch that all the time. We had we had all the Charlie Brown specials, and they used to watch them on long car trips when we were going down to Southern California <laughs> to visit Grandma and Grandpa for Thanksgiving. And they would sit there with their iPods, their iPods, and watch videos on them. That's uh-huh. how long ago this was when my kids were little, and they watched that Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, and, and they would demand it at various times all through the year. They'd say, "Oh, let's watch the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. It's bad. It's really bad." Charlie Brown Christmas. That one is really good. It's brilliant. It's a classic. So uh, if you're just doing over-the-air TV, December 13th, you can get it. If you're not an Apple TV Plus person, December 11th through the 13th, it will be just free streaming on Apple TV Plus. You don't have to be a member. Um, The Thanksgiving one, don't watch it, but it will be streaming free later this week. Don't watch it. It's bad. It's kind Um, of funny, right? Because like Apple clearly wanted this because it's like a good hook to get people to sign up and then they ended up just putting it on TV anyway. It's like, oh man, they tried so hard, you know? It's very funny to me. They did. They did. All right, this episode is brought to you in part by our friends over at SaneBox. One of the biggest time wasters for work is email. You don't even you don't have to blink twice. You don't think twice to answer that question. We all know that we spend so much time in email. So much time is wasted. Studies have been found like so much of our time. Right, managers are spending hours and hours a day looking in their inbox. They're spending time on emails that should never have been sent to them. Stuff they didn't need an answer. This is things that we can all relate to. Right, that you're getting these emails coming in. It's like, why did I even get this email? Or like. Was this email even meant for me? Because it doesn't apply to me at all. Let alone stuff like newsletters that you don't want or spam that you're getting all the time. You don't want to deal with any of this time-wasting email. That's why you need SaneBox. If there was a way to magically press a button and only ever have the email that you wanted, we'd all press it. But that button doesn't exist. But SaneBox provides you with these features. In just a few clicks, SaneBox can automatically get your email under control, filtering out all of the messages that you don't need to focus on. You don't have to switch email apps because it works in whichever client you already use and has some really fantastic features like the Sane black hole. So if somebody emails you and it's nonsense, you don't ever want to hear from that person again, or maybe you've got multiple emails from someone and it's all rubbish to you, Just drag that email to the same black hole and you will never see emails from that person ever again. They have sane reminders. So if you get something like, oh, I want to remember to do this later on, you can send it through to sane in the same reminders folder and you'll be able to get an email reminder for your future self. A couple of features that I absolutely adore with SaneBox, Sane News and Sane Later. These are two other filters that you can get. Say news looks at your email coming in, and if it seems like it's a newsletter, we'll just filter it away, which is great because then it means that all my newsletters are in one place, so I can go and read them at my own leisure. And saying later tries to assess if an email is not worth your time right now. Maybe it's from a new sender or it seems like it's got content. Like It's very clever the way that SaneBox filters this stuff. It will put it into the Sane Later folder so you can deal with it at your own leisure. And you can also train SaneBox. So if you get something in your inbox and you drag it to Sane Later, it learns from that and can over time it will apply these learnings to your email. It's really, really awesome stuff. 
You can see how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Go to SaneBox.com slash UpgradeFM and you can start your free trial today and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash UpgradeFM. Our thanks to SaneBox for their support of this show and Relay FM. So, Jason, last week, uh, Apple introduced the App Store Small Business Program. Um, as a very quick refresher for anybody that's not familiar with this by now. Basically, any developer that earns under a million dollars a year can qualify for a reduced 15% commission on sales in the App Store. So Apple are slicing their cut in half from 30 to 15%. There are still some more details to come, but in a nutshell, you get that 15% if you earn under a million dollars a year. If you cross a million in a year, th- the 30% will kick in for anything on top of that $1 million of revenue for you, so that Apple will take their cut uh, at a larger rate. Um, if you do cross a million dollars in a year where you're a part of the program, the next year you will go to 30%. And you can reapply to the program if you fall below a million dollars again, and then you're back in the program the following year. I wanted to just get your thoughts on this. Like, how does this deal strike you, especially now it's been a few days, so we've seen a lot of uh, people talking about it and stuff like that. It's interesting that it's um, not just a cut, but it's a special program, (laughs) right? It's a little like saying HBO, um, HBO Max, once you uh really wants you to sign up for it even though you get it mm-hmm. like you get it you're you just have to sign up for it well this is the other version of that which is you get a big cut but you have to apply for it um re- you know re- reduction in this this is a 20% what 20% ish a little more than that mm-hmm. increase from in revenue from the perspective of the small developer we've all been saying that apple should do something like this especially in the face of all of its criticism it's very clearly a move that is happening because Apple is feeling the pressure. Um, it's also a, so it's, it's about PR. It's about um, changing people's perception of Apple. And the, the funny thing is for those who have been criticizing Apple, and that is things like uh, Epic games and David Hennemeyer Hansen from uh, Basecamp, um, They were all really infuriated by this. And like DHH went on this, twitter rant that is like hilariously out of control and and the epic games guy um tim sweeney tim sweeney similarly and i'm not surprised they reacted that way because they're essentially in a political and pr battle with apple where they want governments essentially to step in and change apple's behavior and so any move apple makes that makes it harder for them to do that they are going to attack. What's frustrating to them about this move is that Apple is legitimately improving the lives of all of its small app developers, uh, giving them a 20% raise. These are the heartwarming indie developer stories and small business stories that we've heard about before, and we will definitely hear about more now that Apple has done this. It also puts people like Epic Games in opposition to those people. It reframes this conversation from being Apple's taking too much money from developers to Apple's taking too much money from big slash rich developers. And it reframes the story 
as um, a couple of rich guys fighting over a quarter they found on the street, right? Which is sort of like, who cares? It's a couple of rich guys. I don't care. And again, I'm not saying, I'm just talking about perception here, right? I'm talking about perception here. It makes it harder for Epic because Apple is going to be able to card out all sorts of uh, small developers who are so helped by this. And it makes Epic seem even more like, you know, we we make a lot of money, but not quite enough. Uh, a- Apple should give us more money because why not? Because we want it. Mm. Um, so so I understand why they reacted the way they did because this is a really good PR move by Apple. Now, is it a PR move? Yes, it is. It also is really good and helps a lot of people. I There are lots of issues. I thought it was really funny. A lot of people have been picking into the details of this and saying it doesn't really make sense in a few places. Apple's statement on this specifically said that details would be revealed in December. So I feel like maybe some of the details everybody's asking for are details that are just not announced yet. I wouldn't have been surprised too if they took a a, a view here of like, let's see how this is received and then we can tweak it a little bit right. if we need to. Yeah, don't don't be specific about it and see what people criticize about yeah. it and then address those criticisms when you officially launch it. Because yeah. the big criticism is that the way it works is um, is very bad if you're somebody who is, if you're a, a small business, uh, and it wouldn't be like an indie developer probably, but like a small development shop and you've got apps and you're about to go over a million. Mm-hmm. It's really bad. Like if you if you go over a million, but your business just hovers around a million, if you if you go over a million, the next year you are at thirty percent. Yeah. And if you go under a million, then you can go back, but you've mm-hmm. lost a year. You've mm-hmm. lost that twenty percent raise basically for a year. And so a bunch of the criticism of this is Apple should probably phase this in and say the first million you make is at, is taxed at fifteen percent. And then thereafter, it's thirty percent. But Apple seems to not want to do that no. because they've they've cast this as a program that you have to apply for. And also, I think that means they they really want to take every dollar they can from the big developers, even if it's their first million. Which fair enough, fair enough. But I wonder if there's some other uh, way to tweak this so that for developers, I mean, it could be as simple as saying uh, it's it's when you're in the program, you the program takes your first million at 15 and then the next half a million, let's say at 30. But as long as you stay under half a million and a half, you're eligible for the program the next year or something like there, there are ways to make this a little bit less punitive because you may end up in a situation where a company gets to December and is almost at a million and they almost want to sabotage their revenue, right? They they almost want to like remove their apps from the store for the rest of the year so they don't go over. And is that is that conducive to the spirit of what Apple's trying to do here? That somebody who makes a million and one dollars is going to end up losing a large chunk of their revenue for one year, uh, whereas somebody who makes nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars doesn't. I. I know these are edge cases, but this is the stuff that's come up. And I would imagine that Apple is looking at that and saying, how do we soften the blow so we don't have people in this really weird in-between case? Because honestly, not only is that kind of unfair, it's also potentially bad PR, right? Like the last thing you want is a sad story about how a successful app developing company had to lay off people 
because they fell over the the million dollar mark and therefore are going to see their revenue go down. No, that's a bad. You don't want that. You don't want that kind of story. You just want it to be that the the rich guys in the store keep paying you thirty percent. So, I I think it's a, a brilliant move. That's going to be great for all the people we know who are small developers. Um, I I think it's a brilliant move for Apple in the sense that it makes the arguments of their opponents tougher. I don't know if it necessarily is going to actually get Apple allow Apple to escape from the various regulatory scrutiny scrutinies that they have invited from the EU and from the US and elsewhere but it makes it makes it less likely and i i think that it's not just a matter of um can governments step in it's also a matter of what is a government's priority in terms of regulating big tech and has Apple defused the situation just enough that it's dropped even lower on the list below Google and Facebook and social media, you know, Twitter? Like, it, it, has Apple done enough there? I don't know if they have. Well, it's a shrewd move, right? Because yeah. it, it, it really severely undermines the arguments of people like Sweeney and Hannah Hansen. Because... What are they arguing? That the rich should continue to get richer? Because yeah. that's the well, argument now. Yes, yes. They're, and, they're forced to make that argument. And yep. you can cast it differently. You can cast it as, but it's still unfair. Mm-hmm. But they can no longer say, oh, but what about the little guy? We're exactly. the champions of the little guy. I was like, we took care of the little guy. And, You're and standing I've, on your I own I think now. I've it's made my point very clear many times in that uh, the, my main issue with this has always been Apple telling not main, but one of my main issues is Apple telling big businesses how to run their businesses. Like that's always been a big problem for me because, you know, it feels to me like there are two big issues here. One is the one that Apple is now trying to fix. And then there is the other one where you've got the Sweeney's and Hannah Mayer Hansons of the world. They have large companies. And why should Apple's and other large company be able to dictate rules to them? Like that's one thing. Right. But that's the rules thing. The money thing. Now the money thing affects people that don't have so much money. Right. And so like it's, it's, it gets a lot trickier now, especially because yep. what this is affecting is that middle band because there is a top tier, which we know about, that can get special deals, right? Like if you're a big enough company. But it does definitely diffuse their argument a bit. Like they can still make lots of very valid arguments about Apple's control and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at the stuff that Apple started to put into place over the last few months, you can see them starting to really like make some holes in areas that they think is important. So like one is this, one is this. Um, there was some leaked code which suggests that like at, um, uh, start up on iOS 14. Uh, with a new phone, you will be recommended third-party apps to try out. Right, they've done that thing now where you can change some default applications. Like these are little release valves that Apple is choosing to let go, which starts to deflate the arguments of these larger individuals. It's what we've been saying for a while now, while this story has been going on, which is the great threat to Apple is that they. The threat is not, oh no, um, we we don't want to change anything, right? Because something has to change. The threat mm-hmm. is, can Apple change itself enough in small ways to avoid an outside entity changing them? Because what you really don't want is an outside en- entity telling you what to do. Laws, 
being passed, regulations from from regulators being applied to you, court cases being lost that lead an external force to dictate how you run your business. Nobody wants that. Apple especially does not want that to happen. And I always was baffled about why Apple seemed to be not doing anything because that's an enormous threat to them. So here we are. And the answer is they were working on it. And their their plan is to make very small changes at the margins that they think will give them enough of a PR win to make it much harder to argue that Apple needs to be regulated, which is interesting because I think that they are being very conservative in what they do about this. They're not going to give away the store. It would have been way easier, actually, for them to say first million is 15 and then your second million and up is 30. And instead, they're like, well, we're going to do this program. And once you go past it, then you're not in it anymore. And like that, that's a conservative way of doing it that they didn't necessarily have to do. But it shows that they they wanted to they still want the money from everybody else. Right. At 30 yep. percent. So it's it. But it is a. Uh, an interesting strategy. I think it does take the wind out of the sails of their of um, a lot of their critics. And will it be enough? Probably not, but there's probably more they can do around the edges. But it definitely, like, I understand, like, was it, I think it was Tim Sweeney that likened their struggle to the civil rights movement. And uh, suffice it to say, he got a lot of blowback for that one. It's like, what are you doing, man? Yeah, that was a bad quote. It's an own goal yeah, uh, P- PR move. And this is the thing is, though, like I said, I understand why they're upset. It's because Apple made a really good chess move here and their position is weaker now. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they can't win. Doesn't mean that they don't have more to do, but I can see them getting furious on the internet. And uh, I get it because they're they're angry with Apple because Apple has made their job of of fighting Apple harder by doing this. So a- anyway, it is, I just want to, like, it's a funny story. The the To sum it up, it is a PR move by Apple. Apple wants to avoid regulation. Apple wants to clamp down on criticism of uh, Apple taking too much money away from developers. In doing so, Apple has given a windfall to small developers to the smallest but i would say probably the largest number of apple developers while not having to actually give away a whole lot of money because these aren't the big fish these are the small fish it's the people mm-hmm. we know mm-hmm. but it's the small fry here mm-hmm. and so it's quite a move because it gives them a pr win it makes them uh be able to tell all these heartwarming stories about small developers they don't give away a lot of their money in doing so um and we'll see we'll see how it plays so I, I think it's fascinating from that perspective. Um, if you're somebody who fundamentally believes that there's nothing Apple provides that's worth 30% cut, then I don't think this changes your opinion about it. But um, I've heard from a lot of the small developers who are pretty happy with this because, and, and they do say like even a 15%, it's like, well, there is a lot that Apple does do for a small developer that they're yeah. grateful for. And that's the other part of this is that um, a big developer probably has no problem uh, hiring lawyers and accountants to do to get them, you know, taxes in every uh, country and and certified in every country and all those things. And the little developers can't do that either, and they rely on Apple for that. And Apple is providing a, a very nice service for that now fifteen percent that they're taking. But um, as I think it was John Syracuse on ATP last week pointed out, what this doesn't change is Apple's absolute power, right? Which is what Apple wants. Apple wants to be a benevolent uh ruler of the app store Mm -hmm. and grant more money to its smallest developers 
But make no mistake, Apple in, has not ceded any control over its world here by design. Yep. So the M1 Max have been around uh, oh, yes. with the public for a week with people yeah. like Jason for a couple of weeks. And there was just a few things. That, uh, I had some impressions that I wanted to go through, but I wanted to yeah. just mention a couple of uh, interesting things that have, that have been that have come my way in the last week or so. Uh, there was a really interesting, uh, very in-depth interview on Ars Technica, um, and it was with Jaws, Federighi, and Saruji talking about the uh, M1 Mac and the transition to Apple Silicon for the Mac. Um, and there were a couple of things that I really liked that I wanted to point out. One of them was from uh, Johnny Saruji talking about the M1, saying it's not like some iPhone chip that is on steroids. It's a whole different custom chip. But we do use the foundations of many of these great IPs. Mm. And I think that yeah. really, mm. that I think that yeah. answers from what I what I think many of us have been asking, which is basically that the M1. Yes, you can say that the architecture seems very similar to what they've been doing with their iPhones and iPads, but just in the sense of like, that's how Apple knows how to make chips now. Yeah, I view this as being something that can be overinterpreted. Like, how, how do we think this went? Okay, so they've got the A12X, which then becomes the A12Z. I mean, literally, it's from 7 GPU cores to eight, so you can see that in the MacBook Air with the M1, right? Core count's the same between those two chips, the M1 mm -hmm. and the A12X slash Z. Um, so what he's saying here is, we knew these chips would be in Macs, and we needed to put things in them that Macs would need, and we needed to be aware of Mac uh, usage, like how code executes in Mac OS, so that it, that it was efficient and actually worked with mac os stuff like of course of course i don't think that changes the fact that it, it in all likelihood the m1 really is just an evolution of the a12x and there's nothing wrong with that no there's nothing wrong with that but i feel no. like i feel like it's an interesting statement here because what he's really saying is no we didn't just take a chip we made for the ipad and stick it in a mac yes. of course they and that's what right? that is what i'm trying to get at too because i mean i, I think there's been quite a lot of conversation where people were just saying like, oh, it's just a beefed up iPhone chip in a derogatory sense where like, right. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. It's like Apple knows how to make chips in a certain way that do what they want. But I believe, I believe that the Mac chips are going to go in their own direction now. And like this is just the starting point. Because if we're going to say these are always iPhone chips, we're going to start to bump into some real weird stuff when we start scaling these chips up to get into the Mac Pro. Like, does it mean that then my iPhone could also somehow support six Thunderbolt ports? Like, no, I think, I think it's the same as saying that the A12X is just a scaled I iPhone chip a little bit, right? Which is, well, they added a bunch of cores, and over time, I think what's really happening is Apple is taking that architecture and it's spreading it apart. And this is really not any different from what you just said. It is, it is they're spreading it apart. Of course, a high-end chip for a Mac Pro is going to be different from an iPhone chip, even mm -hmm. if the fundamental architecture is the same. 
the mm-hmm. cores are the same. You're going to add, as you grow that thing, you're going to add features to it. So maybe the uh, the next step up, which is the M1, has, uh, you know, they've integrated RAM on the package and uh, it's got more cores. There's maybe a future one that the RAM is off the package and or, or the RAM ceiling is higher. Uh, maybe there are more Thunderbolt lanes for it to take advantage of as opposed to just sort of the two lanes that are mm-hmm. that are on the M1. Maybe there are other external things, but they like they build modularly up. So you could you know, you could look at a Mac Pro Apple Silicon chip probably and look at it and see it's like the lizard brain in in a human being, right? Like you can see the part that is the same in the human brain and the lizard brain, but it's the whole lizard brain and the human brain's got way more stuff on it. It's kind of like that, I think, where it's like, you'll be able to point at a Mac Pro Apple Silicon chip and say, there's the A16, whatever, but around it is all this stuff that the a16 doesn't need because it's just for the iPhone. And then and I think the story of of the Mac product line over time and Apple's product line over time entirely is probably going to be there's the chip, the A whatever chip that's in the iPhone. There's a chip that's a step up from that that's in probably the iPad Pro and the low-end Macs. Um whether they call it that or not, but it's probably a very similar chip. And then there'll be like another step up above that and maybe another step up above that. And that's how they'll do it. But I think it's interesting that like I don't think this is a matter of them saying, oh, well, we now it's time to make a Mac chip. I think what they did was they, they took the, the A14X and that was like their, we're on our way to making a Mac chip, but there's more work to be done. And anybody who used the developer kits over the summer, they were on an A14Z. There were some features that they didn't have and the performance wasn't the same, but it ran and and in the meantime, over two years, because I'll also point out there was na- so there's the A12Z, and there's the M1. There's never an A13X, right? I I'm starting to suspect that the reason there was never an A13X is because they took that two years to build the M1 to evolve that A12X slash Z into something that wasn't an A14X but was the M1. But still, I mean, it's the same cores. Like I think that that was what they were doing all along. Um, anyway, it's, it's great. They're, they're, they overshot, right? That was the other line that made me laugh is Mm -hmm. in that Federighi article, uh, was, uh, you know, we knew they were going to be good, but we kind of overshot it a little bit. Like they're, they're, that, how good the performance is on them. There's also an important part, which is something that we'd all pieced together, I think, but it's now good to hear Apple say, which is effectively that Windows on M1 is now the ball is in Microsoft's court. So the full quote from Craig Federighi, we have the core technologies for them to do that, to run their own version of Windows, which in turn, of course, supports x86 user mode applications. But that's the decision Microsoft has to make to bring to license that technology for users to run on these Macs. But the Macs are certainly very capable of it. So there is an addendum that I will make, which is you don't want to run it. Like if, if you are thinking like, I want boot camp, you do not want the ARM version of Windows because right. the ARM version of Windows runs x86 applications very poorly. So, yep. you know, if, if you need it, if you think you want it because like it will get you out of a jam, then yeah, maybe. But if you want it because you want to play games, you're not going to have a fun time. Yeah. No, don't. If, if you care about Windows compatibility, do not buy a, 
a Mac with Apple Silicon mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future until yeah. they do something that really changes the story. Just don't. Apple makes a lot of very capable Intel Macs. You may have one already. Yep. Mm, that I would stick with that. Yeah. Right. I would stick with that because it, although I have a lot of um, enthusiasm and and optimism for Windows somehow coming to Apple Silicon at some point because I think there's. I think Microsoft is motivated and Apple is motivated to Microsoft's make it happen. Microsoft's very motivated to put to get like Windows on um, a thing, but it's just yeah. their develop the development community is not for some reason not embracing it in the same way that they have for uh, Apple Silicon. So, like as Carl's saying in the chat room, there is not. I don't believe there is a Chrome version for Windows on ARM, but there is one for Apple Silicon already. Right, and Windows on ARM has been around for a while. Like Microsoft have released their own Surface products with ARM chips in them. The Surface X, I think, is like over a year old at this point. Runs the ARM version of Windows, but just very badly. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know what Apple's doing to convince them. We pit Microsoft and Apple to, against each other uh, even now, and I, I don't think that's right. It's like Microsoft looks at what Apple's doing, and first off, I think Microsoft looks at what Apple is doing and says, "Oh." Well, that'll help motivate people to build um, ARM PCs, right? <laughs> like, oh yeah, maybe Intel's not going to do it for for a lot of people, and they're, they're gonna they're gonna uh, move toward more ARM PCs. So that that gives some more wind in the sails of Windows on ARM. And then secondly, uh, you know, it's not their core audience, but like a portion of the Windows audience does want to run Windows inside of virtualization or on a partition on a Mac, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and. Yeah. Microsoft, I think, is into that and is okay with that. And like, that's not, that, that's just another Microsoft customer and they like that. So I think the issue is that Windows on ARM is just too early days right now and they they don't even sell a copy. It's only on systems that are ARM systems, right? Yeah. So they don't even have a, a box you can buy or a license you can get to download an image to put on a Mac if they, if they could run it. Like, they're not there yet. But I feel like they probably will be. And given that Parallels and VMware are going to do virtualization of ARM-based operating systems on Apple Silicon and that that's already underway, the logical next step is probably that at some point here, Microsoft will make a version of Windows for ARM that will run on those virtual machines inside Apple Silicon. I, I just I think it's going to happen. It's just going to take time. And the good news is Intel Macs still exist, if mm-hmm. you care. And PCs exist. I mean, you don't yeah. just get a I mean, PC it, laptop and, honestly, and do that's, that too. For a lot of options, it's probably the best yeah. choice, right? Like, uh, Because as well, with the power of Apple Silicon chips, you might not need to buy as expensive a Mac anymore. So the money you save, just buy a Windows laptop. Uh, is AppleSiliconReady.com? Terrible name to say out loud, but it could be <laughs> a useful resource for you if you have a specific application that you need to know if one, it runs in Rosetta 2 because not every app does or not every app does very well. Or if you want to make sure if something is Apple Silicon optimized, you can go to this website. It has a large selection of applications and you may be able to check if your one is there. Um, again, like, you know, I have f- very fond memories of uh, the original transition, right? This is I'm probably going to keep bringing this up a lot now because it's just it means something to me is like my first real foray into the Mac. I remember all these types of websites for the original Rosetta, right? Like, does it run? How well does it run? And that kind of stuff. So it's good to have these kinds of resources around, I think. 
yeah it's great um it's yeah it's not the best name i like it's all those words run together too so you can say whatever isap le silicon re die <laughs> i don't know i mean I, 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 there's many ways you can pronounce is apple silicon ready but um it's good to see that and it's funny you know the 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 short version we're gonna talk about you and i have both um been using these a lot because we both bought our own too. So I got yep. out of reviewer mode and have spent the last week as user mode. And then you got yours and you've been using it too. Like there are, the, the short version is, is Apple Silicon ready for almost everything? The answer is yes. Even if it's just running in Rosetta, it runs yep. fine. There are some very peculiar, like I said last week, edge cases yep. where something doesn't quite work right. Some of that stuff is Big Sur related and some of it is True. Apple Silicon related, True. but it's all headed down the path. The fact that like day and date, uh, there was a an Apple Silicon beta of Photoshop available that you could run side by side with the regular Photoshop uh, if you wanted to, to like use this and when it doesn't do something right, you use the other one. Um, it's all happening fast. So um, it's a good site to look at. And, but it's going to be like there's a music plugin that doesn't work or there's mm-hmm. you know, something very technical and specific. You should check first before you move house to an Apple Silicon Mac. But for most people, it's just going to work. So I have had my um, MacBook Pro for six days. And over that period of time, uh, I have made it my main machine. So... It's very easy to lift off, list off the specs. It has 16 gigabytes of RAM and a one terabyte hard drive SSD. Uh, it's funny these days, I don't have to check anymore. You know, like, you used to be like, oh, what chip did I get? Like, no, it's just easy now. Very easy to remember. Um, and yeah, so I have all day been using this machine. I have eschewed every other machine that I have except for recording audio uh, because the audio recording problems are Big Sur related. It's a little bit shaky with some of the tools that I use. So rather than uh, putting that to risk, I'm just recording on my iMac Pro. Um, Rosetta 2 is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. In pretty much every instance, there is no way for me to know if an app is not native. I don't know. Like it's, no. you know, I have to check by going to get info and seeing if it tells me. That's the mm-hmm. way I know if an app is native or not. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, if you select an application and choose command I to do get info, it actually says what kind of application it is, mm-hmm. Intel, Apple Silicon, or Universal. Yep. Um, and you can see it right there. Just like in the old days of the Intel transition like 15 years days. ago. And, and something else that, that has come up that I realize now is exactly what I said 15 years ago is not only if you buy an Apple Silicon Mac, will all of this stuff just basically work? It is the very rare case where things will get faster over time. Yeah. Because updates will come out that turn your Rosetta apps into native apps and they'll just be faster then. So they'll start a little slower and then they'll just keep getting faster, which is pretty unusual for computers. Right. And it's pretty great. Yeah. So, on that note, apps load just unbelievably quickly. Like, if I open Logic on my iMac Pro, and I have a, like many of our friends do, uh, a 8-core Mac Pro from 27, iMac Pro, sorry, from 2017, with 64 gigabytes of RAM. That's what I'm using right now. When I open uh, Logic on this, it takes a few seconds. And it's always been like that. Logic has always taken a beat to open. But on my MacBook Pro, 
one bounce and logic is open, which I have never I th- seen that before. I've just I never seen think- that. I got to think that that is in part this new unified memory architecture that it's just has the ability to load stuff into memory so much faster. Yeah, it's just there waiting all the time, right? Yeah, it's done some advanced machine learning. It's using a camera to look at your face and it (laughs) recognizes that your face looks like it's about to launch logic. And so it just starts loading logic in the background. So when you click the button, it's like, oh, here it is. That's not actually what happens yet, but will probably happen in the next few years. So I I ran some bake-offs and uh, Logic Pro exporting on the M1 is slower than my iMac Pro. So you know I I, t- yeah. I did some like like ra- I'm racing these machines against each other and and yeah. it's slower. I just um, to be clear, you're you're racing an iMac Pro mm-hmm. against a yeah, little laptop. Yeah, I know I did this but, because you know there are lots of examples like all of our developer friends. You know, like it's the opposite for them that. You know, like their apps are compiling, and you did this too yeah. faster on the M1. Yeah. No, I just think it's funny that we're 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 talking about a an iMac Pro against yeah. a little laptop because there's a huge imbalance there. Yeah. But that's this is where we are because I did the but same the thing. Reason that I even thought I could try this, Jason, is I have never experienced in-app performance in Logic like I have experienced on this machine. Huh. It is absolutely fluid and responsive in a way i have never felt like zoom in and out panning around dragging like everything is instant and is moving under my mouse perfectly right so something that i will very frequently have is i select all of a thing and will drag it and i'll have to kind of wait for it to catch up this is very normal for my mac pro and this is because i am dealing with sometimes very large files, like four, five gigabyte logic projects with 1500 cuts in them, right? Like I'm really pushing logic in a way that it does not expect to be used, right? Um, right. Like Apple, Apple very frequently uh, is optimizing for, you know, like 15,000 uh, uh, instruments, but they're for three minutes, right? Uh, I am doing things in a very opposite way of that, of like, here is a three-hour audio file, but there's only three tracks, but there's lots and lots and lots of cuts, so lots of things to keep track of. And the performance that I have experienced is just so different. It is so, so different. And honestly, the way I could describe it is it feels like an iPad in that way, where everything is responsive in a way that I have not seen from a Mac in the past. So that is the biggest change for me. So I did a a similar kind of uh, podcasting workflow test on my MacBook Air. And uh, what I found is, like you, there are certain things that are faster on the iMac Pro. I, I did a denoising test of a long file mm-hmm. using Isotope, which is running in Rosetta, I will say. So when it goes to native Apple Silicon, it may be faster on the on the MacBook Air. But for now, that was a faster that's my that's the task I bought the iMac Pro for. Yeah. And it is faster at that. Like yeah. it is. That is a fully multi threaded and that the Xeon processor cranks away on that and it does a great job. So that's faster. Not like spectacularly faster but it is faster but you're right everything else that i did felt uh fluid and even in isotope the denoising app that i use for this doing all of the like opening the files saving the files selecting all of that stuff was far more fluid and far less laggy and you know please wait please wait Mm -hmm. please wait while i load this progress bar slow 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 all that stuff was way faster so 
um, it's it's an interesting mixture, right, of the stuff that is um, that is not as accelerated, I think, because of Rosetta in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and the stuff that is. Um, is more accelerated, or maybe even some of it is stuff where the particular configuration of the iMac Pro is built for that, yeah. and the M1 is trying its best and is doing a pretty good job, but is not is not up to the standard, believe it or not, of a Xeon processor, which of course it's not. Um, it's amazing how close it gets, though. Yeah, because they're both eight core, yeah. but my iMac Pro's eight cores are eight high performance cores, basically. Yes, they right. they are so, basically. But it's picking up with the memory bandwidth and the and maybe even the SSD speed. Mm-hmm. It's picking up benefits there that show in different places. So it, it is. I mean, yeah, it feels the whole thing just feels so so fluid. Yeah. Um, in but general, two of the most taxing things that I expect that I'm doing with my machine are before and after the edit process. So one is I bring my files into Adobe Audition and use a match loudness that they have in Adobe Audition, which I really love. So it basically just levels my audio files to a particular loudness. That that and Forecast, which is Marco Arment's tool for um, taking a, a file and adding the chapters and also doing the final compression from Wave to yeah. MP3. Oh, Those that, two that things, hits all the cores. That kills the cores, right? That's the yeah, whole goal that's of the that whole point app. of it. Mm-hmm. But those both are Rosetta 2, and they, in my tests, were doing things at exactly the same speed as my iMac Pro. <laughs> and I cannot fathom how that is possible. That, uh, you know, I, I was a little bit like, oh, man, I wanted to see it beat uh, Logic. But the things that I really wanted to see how it would do is forecast and audition, because these are the things that typically uh, take a, a chunk of time. And I know that they're pushing machine to its maximum, and they were running as fast. And I couldn't believe that. Like, ultimately, for me, like it feels like it doesn't matter exactly what's going on, whether this application is M1 or it's Rosetta. Everything works. It all works great in a way that is astounding to me. Like I, I'm really blown away by the overall performance of this machine. It's very, very impressive. The one downside for me is that there are far fewer iOS apps available uh, than I expected there would be especially in the categories that I'm looking for. Like there's a lot of productivity tools that there aren't. Um, the iOS versions haven't been released for them, which is a shame because the ones that I've been using, they work just as I expected. So Widget Smith, yeah. I now have Widget Smith widgets on my Mac, which is great because I love those widgets. Overcast mm-hmm. is fantastic to have on my Mac because I use Overcast as part of my production process for publishing shows. So I very frequently will take the edited audio and upload it to Overcast, which you can do if you're a, a premium member or subscriber. You can upload files yourself. And I will check that the chapters are good and that it all seems okay. I can now do this on my Mac where I am. Yeah. I'll usually have to take my headphones off, put my AirPods in, get my iPhone, and do it there. But I get to now have that as part of the production process on my Mac, and that's awesome. And some games that I've tried, they work great. Like for me, it's not that they're great or what they work how I expected them to work, right? right? Which is a little bit worse than they do on the iPad. But that's perfectly fine because it's now opened up me up for tools that weren't on my Mac before. And I and I really implore developers to give it a go. You know, like yeah, you know. Yeah. Give it give it a try. Um 
don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yes. Um, I, I think if you're a developer who's withholding your app from the Mac, look at it. Could it be better? Yes. But think about that you're giving access to somebody who loves your app on iPad or iPhone. Easy access to it on the Mac. You're helping them out. Your web equivalent, if you have one, it's not as good. It's almost certainly not as good for a lot of reasons, even if it does all the same things because it's in a web browser window instead of if in its own window. Mm -hmm. And yes, if you want to improve it, if there are things that are wrong with it and it doesn't work right, well, of course, don't put it on the store. But like, if you want to improve it, improve it. If you want to add Catalyst stuff to it, you know, great. Those that, that's all great, but but don't let I would say perfect be the enemy of good because my greatest disappointment disappointment with iOS apps on Apple Silicon is that most of them aren't there mm-hmm. more than yep. anything else. Yep, it you know it's and as well like understand that the people that are looking for this are your 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 biggest fans right of your apps because they're not very visible right you really have to have decided you want that app and then go and get it right like they're not surface on the store you have to search and then click a couple of buttons to get it there right like these are the people that are really looking for your application give them the option we'll see but yeah i will say uh i i am excited about the mac in a way that I haven't been for about five years. Because there's some stuff going on, Jason. And I'm like, come yeah. on then, show me what you got. What's, what's round two? Let's see it. Yeah, it's super things, cool. Things are happening. Um, you know, I migrated my old MacBook Air that I uh, used to use a lot, don't use a lot anymore. Um, I think of you when I look at that MacBook Air, Mike, because it's the one where we have that those New York... New York briefings with interviews and I have to like record upgrade and all that. And like, all right, I'm going to bring the Mac for this. Cause this is probably too far for my iPad to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I migrated it after many years of service after like seven years of service, uh, to the new MacBook air. And, uh, it's been fun playing with it and it's just, it's, it's great. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to have a modern Mac laptop in my, in my, collection of tools because every now and then i have to choose do i go out into my cold office that's not heated on the weekend and do a thing and i think oh i could grab the laptop and do that where it's warm and that's uh, kind of fun for things that i can't do on my ipad All right, this episode is also brought to you by our friends over at MailRoute. Bad actors threaten your business with spam and viruses, and they're even more sophisticated in 2020. Email traffic has tripled as companies have increased the number of employees working from home on residential networks. And as admins look to mitigate associated risks to their businesses, one of your biggest vulnerabilities is probably your email, and this is where MailRoute can help. When it comes to handling business email, there are a number of things that are vitally important. Security, speed, uptime, and a streamlined workflow. MailRoute solves all of these issues. MailRoute's team was the first to build an email filtering service way back in 1997, and they've been focused exclusively on email security for 23 years. MailRoute is the only service to provide one-click sync with both Office 365 and G Suite for simple and safe migration. Their API-level integration ports your data from 365 directly into MailRoute, so there's no need to duplicate your workflow to activate this protection. MailRoute also meets federal compliance standards, including NIST 8. 
800-171 for Department of Defense contractors. Admins enjoy real-time log searches and real-time reporting in their custom dashboard. And your dashboard also includes granular controls to stop spam and phishing attempts, plus viruses, ransomware, and malware. It is the whole kit and caboodle, this thing. You've got to go and try it out for yourself. And you'll get 10% off the lifetime of your account if you go to mailroute.net slash Upgrade. You can even get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. So just go to mailroute.net slash upgrade to start protecting your business today. Mailroute, making email better. Our thanks to Mailroute for their support of this show and Relay FM. Protecting you from bad actors. Watch out, Chuck Norris. You're not getting my stuff. Not you. So that isn't all that's going on with the Mac, though, right? It's not just M1 Macs. We also have... Mac OS Big Sur. Oh, did that come out? It sure did. Mac OS 10. It's no more. We now have Mac OS 11. And the first, well, I guess the only Mac OS 11 probably will be Big Sur. And then we'll go to Mac OS 12, something else next year, which is the expectation yeah, the, based there on the way a, the beta cycle's going. Yeah, there's an 11.1 beta. So that suggests mm-hmm. that we're going to an iOS style uh, approach where it'll just march every year now. And I didn't really have much experience with Big Sur um, until very recently. Like, I I tinkered around one of the early betas, uh, but now I am using it on my M1 MacBook Pro. Um, So I'm living with it now. And I know that you have spent, obviously, a lot more time with Big Sur than I have. I'm very early on in my experiences, really. I'm kind of like, along with everybody else, has just installed it, which is uh, not not the way that I do with iOS betas, right? Like an iPad OS, I, I install those myself. But with the Mac, I'm I'm a bit more hesitant um, because I do so much heavy lifting work that is is could potentially be be upended by a beta version of a Mac operating system. But nevertheless, we have Mac OS 11 now, and I think the biggest, the clearest, most in your face, and somewhat controversial thing about Big Sur is the design. So there are lots of cues taken from iOS, right? And there are certainly some rough edges. Where are you, kind of, how are you feeling now about the design of Big Sur? How has it settled for you? What do you like? What do you not like? You know, I mostly like it. I um, I know that there are things that are not great, right? Like, there, it's not perfect. It's th- This is what happens with OS revisions on the Mac, which is they do a big design change and they go a little too far and then they spend the next couple of years cleaning it up. And that, that happens, but I like that they're pushing it forward. I like that there's mm-hmm. they're taking more space. Um, whether or not Apple does touch screen Macs in the future, I think that it's also clear that Apple has decided that um, the decisions they made about how tight everything was in terms of layout were from an era where screens were much smaller and the average Mac screen is much larger now. Um, just because, you know, the laptops used to be smaller. The average Mac is still a laptop, but the average Mac now is a 13-inch laptop, maybe a 13-point something, right? Like, it's, 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 and the average Mac screen in general is probably, like, I don't know, 14 or 15 inches. Yeah. Because, again, mostly laptops, but also a bunch of giant iMacs. Um, screens get bigger, you get a little more room, and they decided to take them, and so there's more padding everywhere. And could that be touch-friendly? I suppose, but it's also just... Design-wise, I think they're saying, let's take the space. We don't need to cram everything in. And some people are complaining about that and don't like that. And running this on an 11-inch MacBook Air is going to be painful. 
but um I kind of like what they've done. The the contrast seems nice to have the kind of light windows uh, or very dark windows if you're in dark mode and um you know, I think it looks I think it looks pretty good, but there are things about it that are messy and that need to be cleaned up and and that's going to happen. But after having spent the whole summer with it, I'm kind of used to it now and I like it. Yeah, I really like it too in general. Um so there are some parts of it that are there are some parts that I feel seem wrong and there are some parts that I can tell I don't like because they're different but doesn't necessarily mean they should change so like alert boxes seem very different right like they look very different you know they are now these kind of things that appear in the middle of the screen and they are uh, more I guess more square than rectangular I guess in most instances but the point is that they are now like a vertical thing not a horizontal thing and all the text is centered it's like you don't look like an alert box to me, which is why I think I find it so weird as opposed to not liking the design. It's just I'm very used to these things being a certain way, and now they're not that way. And I reckon I will get used to it, but there definitely are some points of it which are very opinionated. And when you make very opinionated choices, you will upset people. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you that overall... I am a big fan uh, of of the of the design of Big Sur because it's just you know it's fun and it's and also as well like for me it is more familiar to me for iOS and so therefore I think everything on Big Sur looks more modern and when I go back to Catalina it's like ooh you look old. <laughs> Have you had that experience? Like when you go yeah. back to a Catalina Mac, how do you feel about that now? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's all very nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I agree. I, I think, I think you got to move forward. I think you got to move forward. You got to um, try to modernize the look and feel and people will complain because it's a change. And also because you didn't get it right the first time, it's a little bit off. And mm-hmm. then you spend the next couple of years as a designer fixing it. And I think that will be what happens here um even over the summer i think that the design got a little more consistent yeah um and yeah so i i think it's i think it's okay i the way i i put it in my review is that i feel like catalina was the bad cop Mm -hmm. and that this is the good cop and like they made catalina break all the software and all of those things and then uh and then this one gets to move on and say ah but we got new things and apple silicon and it's a big big brave new future and um, that's a, it's kind of a funny, <laughs> funny, funny way to, to end up, uh, doing your OS rollout. But I do really think that Apple, at least to a certain degree, just decided that they didn't want the rollout of Apple Silicon to be tied up with Big Sur, to be tied up with incompatibility so that the narrative became Apple Silicon broke my app. Mm-hmm. And so they just did it all last year. Yep. The iPhone 7 lost the headphone jack. So the iPhone 10 could be amazing and people wouldn't get upset about it. Very similar yep. type type of thing. Yeah, like Catalina took a bullet for Big Sur, right? Like <laughs> everything was horrible, but it's so everybody's first run of Big Sur wasn't that uh, alert box nightmare. Unless you're doing uh, uh, Migration Assistant to <laughs> from something older to Big Sur, you'll still get it. Uh, how do you feel about the app icons? You know, we, we spent a lot of time looking at these uh, over the summer. Um, how are you feeling about them now? Does it kind of feel right? 
Um, no, I mean, like we said, a lot of them are still just literally an image inside a round rect, which is dumb, and they need to rethink them, but that's where we are. Um, and all the apps that I use have not updated their icons yet, so the dock is this kind of like combination of various weird shapes of icons and i know mm -hmm. apple wants everything to be around wrecked but and and it'll all get there but you know it's fine it's, it's weirder on catalina as apps are starting to update their icons than it is on big sur because i have more catalina icons in my dock but now have these like clearly big surified icons and that looks very strange so a couple of new uh additions are control center notification center uh how useful do you find these additions well like these changes i should say to the way especially for a notification center is more of a change than an addition but how are you feeling about these on big Sur? so control center got a lot better over the summer um there's more work to do there i like it as a direction because it sort of unifies as somebody who runs like bartender in order to slim down how many items i see in my menu bar mm -hmm. i like the idea that apple is basically going to build control center to be this place that uh a whole bunch of drop down controls can go uh, they need to add more of their controls to it that you you when the summer started it was sort of not a modular system but actually now you can go to the system preferences app and you can add items or remove some items from the control center and they just need to kind of like keep going down that path because i like that i think also the next logical step is to let uh, third parties have access to Control Center to drop their items in mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, that might take a year or two, but just as a way to kind of like simplify the menu bar, something that doesn't need to display in the menu bar, um, but needs to be sort of quickly accessible. Living in Control Center is a nice way to approach it. Yeah. Um, and you can, yeah, you can add things, you can drag things out of Control Center into the menu bar, and you know that it, it's it's gotten a lot better over the course of. Um, over the beta version of it. But um so I don't mind it. I think it's I think it's also it's additive. It's not saying no, you can never put your Wi-Fi status in your menu bar if you care about that. Like of yeah. course you can. You can do that if you want. And you sort of like you can promote anything uh you can think of more or less into the menu bar. Um or you can take it out and put it in in uh control center. I like that. I think that's a good way to approach it. Notification center is a bit of a mess for me. But yeah. just notifications in general, like they took the buttons away and, and now mm. you have to like hover and click to get to the actions to accept or like do, it's all a bit. Yeah. I play a game where I move my mouse over and I try to like click the X and then the X goes away and then I have to move it back and wait and the X comes back and I have to move it, but not too far and then click the X to make the notification go away. It's, mm -hmm. it's not good. And I don't use, honestly, I've never really used the notification center sidebar. It's sort of out of sight and out of mind. And now I go there and I'm like, oh boy, I got a lot of notifications to clear now. Hmm. And you only get to see like three, yeah. which is really strange to me. It's a click to see more. Like I, I don't really like what they did to the notification stuff. I, I think that they've made that. Um, there the kind of isn't really any improvement there at all. And and I they think they've they've made everything a little bit worse in my opinion. Like th that has been the one clear thing to me where I can see like no, you made this harder, and all of the ways in which notifications are handled seem a little bit wonkier. Uh, in Big Sur, that there's something that I'm I'm not I'm not that hot on. Uh, what yep. other things jump out to you? Like, really, it is the design, right? The design, the sounds. You know, we spent time talking about this stuff in the past. They're like the big, big things. But are there any other parts of Big Sur that you're finding particularly interesting? Well, messages 
it's easy to take messages for granted, but messages on the Mac was bad mm-hmm. and old mm-hmm. and didn't have a lot of the features that were on iOS. Yeah. And because they took it and put it in Catalyst, it's it's good. It's not great. It's not great. Like, I could criticize some of the behavior. There's some quirky behavior in there. Is it because it's Catalyst? Maybe. But, like, if you compare it to the previous version of Messages, it's so much better on so many different dimensions because of the features. And also because, quite frankly, it works better i you know i have so many problems with old messages in terms of like typing in one tab and suddenly i'm in a different tab typing to a different person it's like that happened to me all the time it's so frustrating you know like either you send the message and they're like whoops wrong window but i started in that window it just decided to move me to a different window all that stuff seems to be gone now because they threw that app out that's iChat av it's gone it's gone Goodbye. and instead we have messages um so i think that's a i think that's a winner and, um, you know, Safari, but everybody gets Safari. If you're on Mojave or Catalina, you get this version of Safari. But they did a bunch of stuff to, to Safari and added some new features in. And, and, and translation is in there. And I'm not sure whether it's enabled by the new version of Safari or not, but I've been really loving the new 1Password plugin that will just pops up in the form field. So you can very quickly um, unlock with Touch ID if you're on a Touch ID system and... Um, you don't even have to bring up the 1Password pop-up. It just sort of does it in line. I'm not sure whether that's enabled by the new Safari or not, but for me, it ends up sort of coming as a as a, as a a whole. Those things make my Safari browsing experience a lot better. Yeah, I like the new Safari stuff too. I like that uh, YouTube can be watched in 4K now in Safari. This is part of Big Sur. Yep. I have a yeah. nice monitor, right? Like, let me let me look at it in high quality. I know. How do you feel about Mac OS in general now, like, are you positive for its future? Does this just, or I maybe better to say, does Big Sur itself make you feel any different about the Mac and Mac OS? I, you know, they've been heading in this direction. I'm, I, I'm. This is all part of the same thing, which is Apple has gone from viewing Mac OS as a legacy platform, which doesn't necessarily mean they're going to kill it, but it means that it is never going to be more than it is because the people who use it are using it because it provides continuity to the past. And so I believe that there was an era at Apple where they felt like we're just going to not touch the Mac. We're going to use Intel processors. We're going to just kind of keep it going, build the most we do to the Mac is build our ties to the other parts of our operating systems and other, other products that we use. But otherwise we're just going to kind of let it float and be what it's always been. And it's going to feel a little old, but to the people who are using it, that's fine because it's familiar. And, um, we had those debates about like what's going on with the Mac and does Apple care? Is Apple just going to keep it on life support and consider it the legacy platform? Are they going to try to make it, make it modern? And it is definitely a be careful what you ask for moment, right? Mm. Because if the Mac's not a legacy platform, but instead is a super important part of Apple's whole strategy and has the ability to run iOS apps as well as Mac apps and is going to use Apple's processors and is going to be a big part of Apple's story going forward, it also can't be treated like a legacy platform and left untouched mm-hmm. and feeling like it was designed 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I understand if you're a if you're a dyed in the wool Mac user as I am, that you look at some of these changes and you say, oh, you know, just uh, leave it the way it was, right? Well, first off, 
you know, keep running that Mac running Mojave, you know, you'll be okay for a while. But this is Apple caring about the Mac. And you may not like it. I mean, this is, again, if you've been on the Mac a long time, you'll know um, the most annoying time times in Mac history are when Apple was really trying to iterate and innovate and do new stuff. And let's try this out and let's try that out. And what if this was translucent? And what if this was shiny? And what if this had a 3D effect on it? And you roll your eyes at a bunch of that stuff. But that was also when Apple was investing thought into it. And it did move the platform forward. And a lot of the bad ideas just kind of fell out after a while. That's where we are now is Apple's actually trying stuff on Mac OS and they're not all going to be great. Some of them are going to be annoying and some of them are going to be annoying for good reasons. And some of them are going to be annoying because we're used to the way it always was. And we'll have to figure out whether the new way is better or worse or just different. But I'm excited about what Big Sur represents because Big Sur represents a new era of Apple caring about the Mac and having the Mac be a huge part of its technical strategy instead of the Mac being kind of floated away on a, on a, like a, a slab of ice, <laughs> like, yeah. like you live, live as long as you can, but away from the rest of us. And that was, that was sort of where it was. I feel like a few years ago that, that, um, it may be weird and different and scary and annoying, <laughs> but at the Mac is relevant and important to Apple's whole strategy now. And that's great for the Mac, I think, in the end. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And it is that kind of thing of like, can't have both, right? You can't ask for the Mac to move forward and also for it to stay the same. Like it, It's going to move yeah. and it's moving. Yeah, that's, that's it. And the fact is, uh, people maybe forget a little bit about how annoying it was in those eras where the Mac was really changing and moving and it was annoying and people were annoyed by it. But uh, if, if you've got to choose between, and I do believe this is not a false choice. I think this is a real choice. It's like, you can't say, oh, well, the Mac is going to be central to Apple and it's going to be a part of their core and they're going to invest a lot of time in it, but it's not going to change. Like, it's not how it works. <laughs> so I would rather it change and adapt and continue to be a part of Apple's big structure. I actually, you know, you and I have talked about um, iOS laptops for a while. We, we, mm -hmm. we talked about, like, what if there was an iOS laptop? Yep. The whole premise behind the talk about an iOS laptop or an iOS desktop was, well, it can't be the Mac. If we wanted to run iOS apps and have touch and have Apple's processors and all of those things, it can't be the Mac. So we're going to have to have Apple you know, have the Mac over there and then build these things over here. Yep. And it was that's not going to happen. It felt like they wouldn't do anything, right? Yeah, right. Like, they're, well, they're this not is gonna... the only way we're going to get this stuff because Apple aren't doing it. Right. And now I, I think that that's just, that's not the way it is now. Now the uh, traditional computer shapes are Macs, but they're also part of Apple's overall strategy. And I think in the long run, the, you know, you're going to have two choices, right? I mean, as of today, you have two choices. You have an iPad Pro or Air in a keyboard case made by Apple with cursor support that you can use that's completely on iPad OS. Or you can get a MacBook Air also running on an Apple-designed processor and runs some 
iOS software as well as Mac software. And if that story changes over time, then you're really sort of just making some some interesting decisions about the hardware. Mm-hmm. I think that that's where Apple wants the Mac to be is part of its whole product line and that there's a really nice continuum from iPhone all the way up to Mac Pro. Yeah. And if they hadn't done this, that's not what it would be. If they hadn't done this, there would be the Mac is available. It remains a product in our lineup. <laughs> and then over here, we start at the iPhone and go up to a desktop iPad thing. Yeah. Um, but the, we're not, they, they made the choice not to do that, I think. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. There are so many VPN providers out there. You bet you've heard of loads of them. Some you may have used before. There's a reason I use ExpressVPN. There's a reason why I'm telling you about them right now. It's because they're really good. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Other VPNs can make money by selling your data to ad companies, but ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server, which makes it impossible for their servers to log in if your info is all stored in RAM. Second is speed. Many VPNs can slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've used ExpressVPN for a while, and my internet speed remains super fast. When I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. I have done this many times. I've been in other countries, and I've connected to ExpressVPN as if I'm in the UK, so I can continue watching TV shows that I've been watching at home on streaming services that I use, and you would never know. Or like I've had ExpressVPN on while I've been traveling, I've come home, and I've left it on at home because I didn't know it was on. This is stuff that's really happened to me when using ExpressVPN, because it is really fast. The last thing that makes ExpressVPN super great is how easy it is to use. You don't have to input anything, program anything, change anything. You just fire up the app, click one button to connect, and if you want to say that you're somewhere else, you just choose from a drop-down and click that too. It's so easy, anybody in your life could use it. It's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech sites that I use and trust rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN available. So, go protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Go to expressvpn.com slash upgrade today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash upgrade. Go there right now and check it out. That is expressvpn.com slash upgrade to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and Relay FM. It is time, Jason Snell, for some hashtag ask upgrade questions. And this week, we're going to start off with a question from Kevin. Kevin says, do you think that any of the just introduced M1 Macs will be refreshed during their two-year rollout plan? So Apple is saying that within two years, they will have transitioned the entire product line over. Do you think that we might see any changes to the just released products during that period of time? I do. Seems possible, right? I reckon ne- I, within the next 12 months, there'll be an update to these, pro- these some of these products at least. In, in fact, I'm going to guess, and we don't know. We, this is the beauty of it. We don't know. Mm-mm. I'm going to guess that a year from now, these Macs will all be updated for the M2. Mm. Right? The only one that I would pause on is the Mac Mini. Maybe we'll see what they do with the Mac Mini, right? It's possible yeah. that they're going to do a they're going to do a high end Mac Mini configuration. Yeah, but they could even do that potentially and say now you can choose your Mac Mini. There's the M1 and the M1X and all of that. But I don't know. We're going to see. I keep feeling like since these are Apple's processors, that they will just put all of these products on a 
annual or 18 month cycle and just mm-hmm. but it, in the next 2 years i would say for sure that in the next 2 years probably within the next 18 months if not the next 12 months they're all going to get whatever the next generation chip is just like the iphone does so it, you know it might be more like the ipad where it's every 18 months that's fine but i i think the days where apple is intrans- intransigent easy to say when the days when Apple's intransigent with their Mac updates because it's like, well, you know, we're not ready, Intel's not ready, whatever. I feel like they're going to have extra motivation with these new chips. Like they're not going to want to keep selling the old chips when they got the new chips since they made them. Yeah. So, yes, um, I but definitely within the next be two years, a little more loosey goosey than they were before in a good way, right? Like we might update it in a year, it might be in six months, it might be in eighteen months, but we'll do it when we're good. Rather than you know, and it's our decision. Rather than we have to do it now because we've waited for so long. Like I don't know if we're gonna get yearly product updates. I would say, as you said, like probably will end up closer to six, uh, 18 months, like a year and a half. Here, here's uh, my counter argument would be: if the MacBook Air is your more most popular computer, you could argue that you should just put it on an annual cycle, and every fall you announce the iPhone, and then in the next month you announce the the MacBook Air. With the you know M uh, iPhone chip minus thirteen yeah. processor, in it. but there are, I don't there know. are different we'll reasons that you do yearly product updates than just we have the new chip, right? right? And I'm not sure that the MacBook Air user is desperate and hungry for the next generation processor at yeah. this point. And right? I like, think it, you're more likely, yeah. if you're Apple, to want to upgrade iPads more frequently because they get additional yeah. features hardware features to right. them that and even the max might not get i don't know even the ipad pro is on an 18 month cycle right exactly. so ev- even like that so i agree with you um i'm going to put a wrinkle in there too which is but what if these models are all the transitional models definitely and within the next yes. and the next wave has hardware changes yes then you're even more likely to see it, I would say, sooner because Apple's going to want to sweep away, maybe next fall, sweep away the MacBook Air with their newfangled MacBook mm-hmm. Air. Although the MacBook Air may actually be a bad example because they did redesign it for Retina, and I feel like maybe that is the ret- the MacBook Air now. But um, we'll see. We'll see. But I, I think it's also possible that we're going to get a faster pace here in the first two years, yes. and then it'll slow down a little bit because they will introduce some new hardware designs, and then they'll iterate for a while. Yeah, this first two year period, there's there's a the future doesn't apply, right? In that sense, like in the future, I imagine it will be probably eighteen months to two years for for significant Mac updates. But within the first two years, I mean, we could have a new fourteen inch MacBook Air in six months that replaces the thirteen inch that I just bought, right? and I, and I'm fully uh, expecting that to happen, right? Like something like yeah. that to happen because these first two years, not is, a MacBook is a Air, MacBook Pro. That's MacBook what I meant Pro. to say. The MacBook Pro, yeah. not the MacBook Air. But like a 14-inch yeah. MacBook Pro, I imagine sure. would come along as soon as they update the 16-inch. With, I don't with think it's going to sweep away your 13-inch because I think they're going to have a 13, a 14, and Very a 15. True. Or 16, but we'll see. For, it, for but Mike it's Kelly, exciting though, to... it will probably be a new... <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so what I'm saying, Kevin, is, you know, don't wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just go just go buy buy an M1 Mac now. I don't think he's he's actually asking that, but I do think that we'll see another refresh in the next 2 years. I think that yeah. setting the over under at 2 years makes this an easy yes. If it was a year or 18 months it would be a little bit trickier, but at 2 years I think absolutely. Brian asks, "Do you think MagSafe could ever come to the iPad?" 
Um, this is the only way I could imagine wireless charging coming to the iPad is MagSafe. Yeah, I mean, it, there's already an array of magnets on the back of the iPad. So mm-hmm. building an iPad where the magnets w- use MagSafe and also are there for mounting on cases and stuff isn't unreasonable. And there, are, w- with the MagSafe puck, you have, unlike a charging pad, right, you can attach that thing and then lean it against, like I lean my iPad against my nightstand when it's charging upside down so that the charging plug is at the top, right? It would not be a big difference to stick the magnet on the back and then lean it there. And you could sort of lay it in any configuration and it would charge. It's a big battery though, right? Like I think there's, that's the challenge is do you really want to slowly charge it with that versus a really fast charge with a USB-C connector? That is the problem. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, as I could imagine maybe it coming with, there could be more power through MagSafe in the future as the technology improves. But I don't know if we're going to see it yet, but this is the the only way I imagine non-USB-C charging on an iPad. I wouldn't put money on it. I I think I think it's it's not a solution for the iPad. It doesn't need to exist. I think the iPad is fine. I also think, let's just say, They'd be better off doing MagSafe on the iPad and the Mac. <laughs> That's more like old MagSafe. Correct. Yes. Yes. Derek asks, I'm currently using a 2018 iPad Pro of a Magic Keyboard. For someone who mainly uses the iPad as a laptop replacement, is the M1 MacBook Air now a better choice? Well, I've been thinking about this question, which I looked ahead in our show notes, as I do as a professional podcaster's. Uh, I've been thinking about the whole episode. Oh, really? This, this is really the question, right? This is really the question. Uh-huh. Um, I've gotten this from a bunch of people, which is like, well, now that the Apple Silicon Macs are out, you don't need to use an iPad anymore, right? Which, again, is not what Derek's saying, but it's a fundamental misunderstanding of why people use the iPad. But I think it's worth talking about here because this is really the issue. Apple now makes this amazing touch tablet that you can stick in a keyboard case with a trackpad on it or do whatever you want with it. And it is running iPad OS. And now there's the M1 MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, and they are light and they're running Apple Silicon and they're really fast. So is the Air a better choice than the iPad? And the answer is no. <laughs> they're the same. Or at least they're they're different enough that you just need to choose what you prefer. And this is the thing. The iPad, you use the iPad because you like the software on it because you like the uh, the ergonomics of it, because whether it's holding it in your hands or being able to pull it out of the case and walk away or using it in the case, having cellular networking, like there are a whole bunch of things ergonomically about it and kind of side features about it that are great. And the software is great and works for you. If the Mac is a better fit and having something that's always a laptop and runs a, you know a few iOS apps, but mostly Mac apps, then the Mac is a better fit for you. Right now, I just don't see, I don't see any crossover here. Like if you could literally run, if, if the Mac <laughs> had a screen you could t- fold back or take off and was touch and also had the ability to run every iOS app, it would be a much more interesting debate about exactly what you want from it. But right now, I think it's really clear and hasn't changed. Do you want to use an iPad or do you want to use a Mac? And I, I think a Mac looks better now than it has for a while. But like I wrote a piece last week about the Mac, my Mac world column last week. I wrote, 
I, I wrote it on my iPad <laughs> because I wanted that was the right choice for that in terms of the ergonomics, in terms of the apps I was using. It was the right choice for that moment. So I think that there, to me, this is not a question that has a clear answer now. It, it's we're still back in. Do you prefer using the iPad or not? The iPad is not a a again. I'm not saying Derek is saying this, but I do hear this a lot. It's like, well, surely eventually Apple will do enough to the Mac that you won't have to resort to the iPad. And as mm-hmm. people like Federico have talked about, Federico Vitici for a long time, um, iPad users aren't, or at least a lot of them aren't resorting to the iPad, aren't aren't uh, coming down to the iPad or having to use the iPad because it's the only thing w- which offers that they like using the iPad. And the iPad Pro with the the Magic Keyboard is even better and offers even more options now. It's not a Mac. Mac users who rely on Mac software are not going to want to use an iPad. And iPad users who rely on iPad software are probably not going to want to use a MacBook Air because they're different. They're just very different. So that's my answer is you should get the one that you that you like. <laughs> And if you've been using the iPad because you really like the ergonomics of it, but you've been struggling with the software and have to go to, back to your Mac a lot and really would rather have a Mac, yeah, you should get a MacBook Air with an M1 because you're going to be happier, but you're also going to lose your tablet and it's just going to be a laptop and have to stay permanently as a laptop. That's just how it is. There is a world in which these devices would have been closer, but that hasn't happened. You know, like if just every iOS app ran... And there was just nothing developers could do about it. The stores were the same. It it would be closer, but it it isn't. It isn't that close. Um, but as you say, they're like. I think even if even if you put the same operating system on these two different things, it's still not one or the other, right? It's like an iMac is different to a MacBook Pro. They both run the same operating system. They both can do the same things. But they're different because one is a laptop. And if you put Mac OS on the iPad Pro, it's still be different because the iPad Pro can be used without a keyboard on it at all. It's thinner. It's lighter. Uh, has Face ID. It has Apple Pencil, right? Like, if you kept those hardware features different, they're, like, they're still different products with different ergonomics and different use cases, different yeah. battery life, different ports. They're different. Um, just because one is closer than the other, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the choice is removed. And finally, Kevin asks, given the speed of even the M1 MacBook Air, do you think that the iMac Pro goes away and the top of the line iMac M whatever takes its place? Is Kevin double dipping, or do we have two Kevins? Two, Kevin is you know? asking two questions. Kevin has lots of good questions. It's the same Kevin. It's the same Kevin. Oh man, Kevin jackpot! You started and ended. Ask upgrade. Yep. Congratulations. Uh, Kevin has a lot of M1 questions. Is the answer? Mm-hmm. I we talked about this when I reviewed the IMAX last time, which is it's feeling to me very much like Apple is happy to build high end IMAX. Yep. And therefore, you don't really necessarily need an iMac Pro anymore. Also, don't forget the iMac Pro was the replacement for the Mac Pro. And then they changed direction and brought back the Mac Pro. So the iMac Pro is kind of not Apple strategy. I... (sighs) Okay, so is there ever going to be another iMac Pro? I'm not sure. No, there isn't. 
thank you, Mike. People <laughs> love it when we whisper. I think it's one and done. Here's the, here, we wondered if it would be. I think here's it the is. thing. I think it's the same question as is there a higher end Mac Mini in Space Gray? I don't know the answer. Like I, I really don't. There's room for one, but will they bother to make one? Will they make a more feel, or will they just replace this two port, two USB C port Mac Mini that we have now? Next time it'll have four, and it'll just be the Mac Mini then. Um, I think there's a possibility for marketing, and that I know this is what we talked about when we talked about the iMac when it came out. You could market the high end iMac as an iMac Pro and give it a different treatment and put Space Gray on it or whatever, if you wanted to. Or you could just make it a high-end iMac. High-end iMac is simpler. If they see that there's some some advantage to calling one of the models iMac Pro, I think they could. I probably wouldn't bet on it. I probably would guess that they're just going to make the iMac, and the iMac is going to be so awesome <laughs> that they'll just be like, it's it's awesome enough as it is. And then if you need expandability, that's what that's what Pro is for. That that's my gut feeling, but. I think there's a possibility that they will take the big high-end souped up iMac and call it iMac Pro and maybe make it look a little bit different, but that's extra work that may not be necessary because the iMac has, is capable of doing that heavy lifting and they do have a Mac Pro up above it. I just, you know, I think it was obvious to me, to us, we've spoken about it for a while of like the iMac Pro is like a... <sighs> It's like a vestige of a bygone era in the sense of like it was supposed to be a thing and then they had to change course. Like the iMac Pro was supposed to be Apple's top of the line machine. Yes. That was its whole reason for being. Right. And by the time it came out, it had already been undercut, right? They'd already changed their mind. Mm -hmm. And then they've made the regular iMac more powerful in some ways. And let's be clear... The next iMac, knowing what we know now about the M1, the next iMac will blow away the iMac Pro in terms of performance. Absolutely destroy Almost it. certainly. Yeah, the, the low-end iMac, <laughs> right? Yes. The, the 21-inch yeah. iMac or whatever will wipe the floor with the iMac Pro. The only thing is if they decide that there's a marketing value in calling a system Pro um, that's essentially just a high-end system. Yeah, I doubt they will do it because that's a- added complexity they don't need and takes away the focus from their other Pro Mac, yep. which is the actual Mac Pro. There are two questions here, I think, which is one, will Apple ever call a machine iMac Pro again? Or two, will Apple make a machine that's clearly this, the like the evolution of the iMac Pro? I think question two is no way. Question one, maybe. Like, you know, like the yeah. iMac Pro has very different internals to make it as powerful as it is. I don't think that's going to happen. And that's not, that doesn't need to happen anymore. No. Uh, they may call a, an, an iMac an iMac Pro, but the idea of what the iMac Pro is, no, there's a reason they released this machine in 2017 and then didn't change it. Oh, I will say, unless they completely redesign the iMac, which maybe they will, and I think they should. They better. If they don't, I will put money down that the cooling system in it will look like the iMac Pro, right? Although they, the right. M1, will they need to cool it? But it'll be like M1Z or something like that. I feel like 
I feel like this is exactly it, right? It's so much that cooling system might be overkill. You might not need cooling for the whole thing, right? No, I'm ta- I, I take it back. I'm not putting my money down. I'm not putting my oh, money down. money's come back. None. The money's money's off the table. I never took my finger off the money, and okay. so I'm going to take the money back. <laughs> All of these iMacs have these huge cooling systems because of the Intel processors that are in them. So yeah. either they're going to be empty shells, or they really are going to redesign these. And I think that's why they're really going to redesign the iMac. It's like not only has it been a design that's been out there forever, but like. So much of it doesn't need to be there if you only need a small cooling system because you've got cool oh, Apple chips. Imagine in how thin. Sliced cheese with that iMac. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Upgrade. I would like to once again thank our fine sponsors of this week's episode, ExpressVPN, MailRoute, and SaneBox. And a huge thank you to our members. If you would like to get ad-free, longer versions of Upgrade each and every week, go to getupgradeplus.com. Thank you for your support if you do that. You can find Jason online at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com. And Jason hosts many podcasts here at Relay FM. If you have yet to check out 20 Max for 2020, the podcast version here at Relay FM, please do that. It is sublime. I love it. Uh, Jason is also at Jasonell. I am at iMike, I M Y K E. I uh, host many shows here at Relay FM. And I also live stream at Mike.live, where currently I have been building. I'm playing around lots of mechanical keyboard stuff. If that's your thing, go check it out. Uh, We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, Jason Snow. Thanks for all the questions, Kevin.